Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, the show that looks at where the law has been and where it's going. I'm Mike Madison. I'm a law professor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with 35 years in the legal sector. This season, we've been covering ALSPs, the sector of the legal industry called Alternative Legal Service Providers. But with conversations about the here and now of legal services, we've planted the seeds of conversations about big, big ideas. This episode tackles the big ideas theme head on with a conversation with my law professor friend and colleague Orly Lobel, who teaches at the University of San Diego. She has a provocative new book out on what we should do with the onslaught of AI and robotics that seems to be taking over the world, including the legal world. It's called The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. Orly, it's great to have you on the Future Law Podcast. Thank you, Mike. I'm so happy to be here. I'm especially happy to be here with you because I've learned so much from you. Well, we're learning from you today. You've got this spectacular new book that's uh, coming out this fall, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future uh, from Public Affairs, available at fine booksellers online and elsewhere. So let's get it right into the, the meat of it. What are the big key takeaway points from this book? I wrote this book to really shift our conversation, to pivot beyond the on the one hand, just rosy, you know, let's just automate everything and it's all good, to the very alarmist skepticism about AI technology, surveillance movements that are happening. And the takeaways are that there is a lot of potential in every aspect of our lives to use technology, to be more inclusive, to correct for inequities that have long pervaded our markets, our social relations. Uh, But we have to be deliberate about it. We have to think about design and choices that we make all through the different stages of rolling out technology. So the title, The Equality Machine, is both catchy and provocative. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about the role that equality, the concept of equality, the word equality, what that, that what role that plays in your thinking and in the book itself. Yeah, so equality, of course, is important to us and uh, perhaps the greatest mandate of our times in the sense of all our thorniest problems, our, our wicked challenges uh, that we're facing as a society, a global society these days, from environmental and climate to poverty alleviation to gender and racial equality, inclusion, education and health, the lens of access and development and equality is one that can help us tackle these issues, and we should be paying uh, so much more attention to it. The title itself, again, it's it's really a message that we can use technology to tackle questions about equality and access and inclusion and diversity, rather than just kind of accepting a lot of the other titles that are out there, bestsellers that um, have really shaped uh, debates and our imagination that have these titles about automating inequality or the new Jim Code is another title, uh, uh, weapons of math destruction. 
So again, this uh, kind of stance of the tech lash that AI is biased and the way that it fails us and it's incompetent or not ready, inaccurate, that, that those ways are patterned in uh, excluding and, and having disproportionate negative effects on vulnerable communities. In the book, I show that that's just incorrect when you look at a lot of the what's happening. Of course, there is bias that we have to address uh, within our new technologies, within our algorithmic systems, but we really have to ask about comparative advantages, about what can we do to correct the technology that we have when we roll it out versus, you know, longstanding biases and inequities and inequality that exists uh, in just kind of the status quo and our human interactions. Can you give us a, an example or two? What are, the, what are the most compelling examples, illustrations, or case studies that you focus on in the book? I know you've got a lot of different material from a lot of different sectors, but I wondered if you could pull out a couple that you think are particularly helpful to illustrate the points that you're making. Sure. And the book really tracks so many aspects of our lives, really all aspects of our lives. So I have chapters about the labor market, hiring, and employment relations. I have chapters about health and medicine and care, media and politics on our social and online interactions, and then also even chapters about our intimate relations like dating and examples from domestic you know, home lives, dating applications and what they're doing. So lots and lots of examples and, and really in the book I showcase and really try to celebrate a lot of the best examples from many different fields of research and leaders who are thinking about digitization as a potential you know, equality machine or, or AI for good. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is from health. Uh, you know, healthcare has always had patterned inequities. Uh, so a lot of the research that went into pharma and to medical devices and to healthcare in general has been disproportionately studying white men, people in uh, more developed countries. And some of what, and, and of course, access to healthcare is very uneven. I'll give you a very concrete example of one of the researchers I interview uh, in the book, Regina Berzilai. She's an MIT computer scientist who actually kind of from a personal event in her life uh, dealing with breast cancer that could have been identified earlier with human radiologists kind of missing some things in, in her mammograms. She shifts from studying, using AI to kind of study uh, dormant languages to applying her expertise to developing algorithmic systems that are really replacing now human radiologists. And it's been rolled out now in uh, some you know, major hospitals in Boston and Mass General and, and other places. And what I argue in the book is that we have to understand that, you know, even when, you know, there's all these alarmist reports about are the automated systems as good 
as the human radiologist. And first of all, I show, you know, that yes, in a lot of cases, they are already outperforming human radiologists. But I even suggest that even if they are on par, or we could even contemplate automated radiologist that maybe is not as accurate as a human radiologist, we should think again from an equality perspective about you know, just the availability of qualified radiologists all over the world. So, you know, most people actually don't have access to timely healthcare in kind of the standards that we we are accustomed to in, in some countries or some wealthy regions. So that potential of automating some of those processes is is very exciting. Well, so the your the example though from healthcare is a, actually a really great transition point, I think, for me and for the podcast, because of course, as you know, this is the Future Law podcast, and the theme of the podcast is the impacts that technologies are having on law and the legal system and law practice. And many of the themes that you're talking about in terms of healthcare and health information and health services when AI and data analytics and automated systems create opportunities for broader populations to uh, access health systems. There's a cousin of that in law and legal services and the legal profession. And so, as you know, the profession right now is in the middle of a lot of debates about access to justice and uh, transitions from human-delivered legal information, human-delivered legal services, human-delivered dispute resolution in courts and in other systems. But you take a smart AI-trained robot or uh, algorithmically delivered legal services, and you can expand, in some cases, opportunities for access to justice to populations of people who can't afford lawyers or don't know where to find lawyers, even if they could access lawyers. And so this is a debate, as you know, that's going on throughout the U.S. legal system right now. It's going on all over the world in different in different forms. So I, I wondered if you could reflect a little bit about how you think about what, what you're trying to reposition our critical thinking about AI and automation. Think about how that translates into law. You know, you're a law professor and a, and a lawyer like like I am. So it's a little bit of a bringing your research back to your home world. And, and how do you think about these problems? Absolutely. And, and I do think about these problems. And, and the book also touches on sectors. So I have some discussion in the book about Compass, the automated sentencing and kind of these algorithms that try to assess risk and, and bail and really, you know, early release um, from prison. And there's been a big debate there about its accuracy and whether it's biased. And turns out that the early critique about how it's biased uh, was really not assessing it correctly. So there's new research that shows that it does outperform human adjudicators and that what I argue in the book is that we really need to, in in our research, we need to examine the systems, both kind of our human systems, the, you know, our our little algorithms uh, of human minds and these new systems in the wild. So, uh, you know, some of the early research was done in these lab conditions that were artificially enhancing the 
judgment and decision making of humans by kind of giving them prompts, uh, you know, and, and every time they made a decision. And, and that's, that was really not the way that the court system operates and kind of the natural settings that we need to compare. On the kind of luring side and uh, access to legal representation, consultation, uh, I think that's a huge problem, exactly like you described, Mike, how most people really kind of surprisingly so, we, we think of health, our physical health, uh, as something that, you know, we see a doctor periodically, we get our car checked, we have a lot of safety checks and insurance for all sorts of things that happen in our lives. But most people really don't have great access and, and even you know, the information that they need about various aspects. So, for example, in my field that i most involved with, uh, which is the kind of employment side of, you know, in our lives, most people only when things go really bad, they even contemplate, like, what was their employment contract like? You know, what, whether they protected themselves. I think that there is a lot of room to make legal services much more affordable, much more accessible when we introduce digital platforms. There's there's one platform in particular that I'm in touch with. It's actually started here in San Diego, Marble, that is doing that kind of legal tech, law tech disruption, if you will, almost like Uber for, for attorneys, um, but with a lot of automation for things that people you know, can, can use kind of as a ready-made pret-a-porter contracts that can help them. You know, again, there's, there's a lot of questions that that raises. I know that you actually, Mike, looked at referees and soccer fields. Um, there's lots of questions about how do you do grievance systems? Well, I'll, I'll just give one more kind of data point that I'm interested in. In the private market, like completely private dispute resolution, we do have evidence that with platforms like eBay, dispute resolutions can be completely automated, like 100% bot automated. And people seem to have a, a terrific experience. You know, on average, they're more accurate, they're more perceived, they're more fair, more consistent. One interesting empirical point is that people who experience grievance procedures on eBay will tend to come back to the platform more frequently than somebody who's never even experienced any kind of grievance, any dispute. So they really, you know, people really have a good experience with that. I do a lot of consulting on content moderation and a lot of that is automated, you know, the sheer scale of content moderation, including questions about copyright and originality, but also child safety and inappropriate you know, speech. All of those, inevitably, we're moving to more and more automation on that. There's you know, very good results and very you know, significant improvements that are happening there. Number one, what's interesting is the point you make about how effective automated dispute resolution actually seems to increase trust in the system. Right. So one of the big challenges in law and legal systems, but also in medicine, public health, in scientific research and uh, say climate science, for example, is the interaction between the expertise 
and the training on the one side and broad public deployment and public policy uptake of things on the other hand. And we all know that there's an enormous amount of conflict and controversy right now about trust in the system. Where does trust reside? How is trust reinforced? How can trust be undone? And automating processes is an area where we don't have a lot of long-term research to guide us in terms of how we automate things well, how we use technology well to reinforce trust in a system as opposed to automating or using technology that might undermining trust in a system. So, so that's one feature uh, of your work that I find really interesting as you're talking through it. And you, you mentioned the paper that I wrote last year about soccer referees and professional soccer or football, uh, which like a lot of pro sports has adopted a variety of technologies to, as we say, assist officials in adjudicating what goes on uh, on a soccer field. It, there's sort of an interesting dynamic in terms of how players and coaches and fans uh, around the world react to the introduction of an automated system while there is still a human referee, at least for the time being, there's still a human being in the middle of the field who plays a pivotal role even while there is a lot of automation going on. But other sports like tennis, for example, do it very differently. So, so that's one really interesting thing is the question about trust and the interaction between trust and legitimacy. The other interesting thing to me, and, and I want to get your reaction to this, is that debates about access and affordability of justice, of legal services, of dispute resolution services, that's a big, big domain in itself. For the most part, the participants in those debates are people who have longstanding stakes in the ground in various respects around civil justice systems themselves, right? So judges, state Supreme Court justices, bar associations, right? Huge controversies in different states right now, including California, about uh, how to adapt or improve the system to improve access to justice? Does that mean doubling down on pro bono legal services or does it mean authorizing non-licensed lawyers to provide certain kinds of legal information? But the participants in those debates on the whole have not been informed by the kind of work that you're doing, which is to say coming to the question from the standpoint of a long-term research project on technology and systems and markets as a research space, right? So you're not coming into this as an advocate for you know, a particular type of reform in access to justice or a particular type of reform in access to medicine. That's part of the payoff of the argument about equality, but you're bringing a set of research tools and research perspectives to this debate that I have always found odd that it was sort of missing, that there were all these people out there doing internet and technology policy and internet and technology law and then there's a separate community community of people who's out there taking, you know, sort of the, the the fairness and equity and access arguments, but they're kind of in a different wing of the conversation. And and you're, I think, blending your work with that existing conversation. That that's my optimistic take. Is that do, do you feel that that's part of your your project? Absolutely. I I love a hundred percent. You know, both of these points are points of entry into the equality machine. And, and you really, what you're describing is a lot of what motivated me to, to write the equality machine because I saw bifurcation and also just kind of separation, disciplinary and kind of research and, and debate separation between what was actually happening, what is actually happening, 
in the tech space and developments in digital platforms and efforts in private market offerings, and then the policy and governance, you know, imagination that we've been having uh, or limited imagination. So first on, on your point about trust, it's trust is hugely important and it's important to me in, in the analysis in the equality machine. I actually go into a lot of aspects of how what I'm arguing really is that we shouldn't just look at how good the machines are. We need to understand the human machine interaction much better. And we means that policymakers themselves need to be in that business of figuring out when something is rolled out, when like a medical device is approved. For example, I describe in the book how um, very personal to me, for my family, the FDA for the first time last year approved a closed loop machine learning pump, insulin pump that you know millions of people can benefit from. There are you know real questions about trust and like rational decision making that we may that we we can make and we can have when there are technologies that can help us that can support our well-being that can increase diversity and improve accuracy a lot of times we have it but we're not really quick enough to adopt these technologies another example or it's it's more than an example it's kind of this really adjacent and and related to this question of trust is the way I see debates about privacy distorting some of what you know can be done by policy. So I'm definitely not against privacy. I like privacy. I care about it. I care, you know I think you know we should have data protections. But I'm also arguing that privacy is the kind of a bundle of things that we might value. And it's one of many other values that we should care about. And there's, there's sometimes tensions between data collection and, and getting the technology better, getting the algorithms more accurate, and having like these flat defaults about anti-surveillance and thinking about everything as surveillance that is really harmful. I think that creating more trust and more kind of richer, fuller conversations. Really, that's the call in the quality machine to, you know, get the conversations and the debates more lined up with where we're going, what what the realities are. That's very much the goal of the book. And that, I think, is also the answer to what you were saying about legal services. You know, there are stakeholders in every field, in every field where we're going to see automation. There's some winners and losers. There are vested interests. There are stakeholders. We should really try to think about our normative commitments, our values, our principles, comparative advantages, and try to, as as hard as it is, uh, as it is uh, try to really be a little bit more questioning and challenging of some arguments that really are not about the benefits, you know, collective goals that we hold, but are uh, really trying to kind of maintain status quo because there are going to be some losers uh, or like the, the profession will change. Inevitably, it's changing. So, you know, we, we, we might as well direct it with much more accuracy. Let me close with one final question on sort of on that theme about change and 
professional change. So I hear your your arguments and understand them about how the book is directed to broad conversations, policymakers, legislators, tech developers, funders, there's a whole range of stakeholders and participants in, in systems that should hear what you're saying. But I'm wondering particularly about your students. I, I'm, uh, I'm assuming that you've been talking about your project along the way with different cohorts of your law students. And I'm wondering how they react to your your arguments. Do, do they, you know, I could imagine kind of a skeptical, you're taking jobs away from us kind of reaction. I could also imagine uh, a kind of, you know, a sunny California optimism and enthusiasm reactions. I'm wondering what you are hearing from the from the mouths of the of the future of the profession. Yeah, so, so full disclosure, Mike, you actually met some of my students and, um, you know, we loved having you, hosting you uh, and talking about Knowledge Commons and your various exciting projects. My students are amazing. And I think that many of these questions of like fearing new technologies, there's a lot of generational differences. And I actually think it's not just California. I think it is a, a generational thing where the next generation of attorneys, of business leaders, of tech developers are far more comfortable with the idea of, for example, autonomous vehicles or bots that will conduct surgery, you know, or perform surgery on, on our bodies or thinking about, you know, what are our relations going to be like, relationships on the metaverse and, you know, they're, they're all writing really exciting stuff about smart contracts and NFTs and lots of things that we, you know, we all need to think about. And I think, you know, as long as we're teaching them about our ongoing commitments and principles and, you know, human rights kind of in fundamental ways about what it is we care about, equities, I think we can really see how they and, and we should all understand technology as tools, you know, not, not as inherently good or inherently evil or inherently replacing us in some way uh, where, you know, that is taking away our humanity, but quite the opposite. You know, the, the, the whole idea of the equality machine is that we can enhance our humanity, like, maintain and really move us toward what we have always cared about and tackle the the things that are most important to our society right now with leveraging you know new opportunities and and harnessing technology well that's an absolutely perfect place to uh, to land the podcast on exactly that note so orly i want to congratulate you on the the forthcoming publication of this terrific book. And thank you for spending this time with me on the Future Law Podcast. It's great as always to chat and uh, and stay up to date with what you're up to and looking forward to what comes next once you've recovered your your energy from the uh, the project of getting this book out the door and, and telling the word, world about it. Thank you. It's always very energizing uh, to talk to you, Mike. And uh, I'm getting uh, geared into... Uh, be in Philadelphia and Boston and Seattle, Los Angeles, San Diego, a lot of book talks and the quality machine. I'm very much hoping to hear from listeners and readers. All right. That's great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Future Law Podcast. We're taking a break for the holiday season. 
We'll be back with a new episode. I talk with Mike Morneo, middle of January, 2023. A longtime senior executive in the space that often gets labeled e-discovery, but as Mike explains, holds other, bigger lessons for ALSPs and the future of law. If you would like to share your thoughts on ALSPs or the future of law, then send us an email at futurelawpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch with us via Twitter at the Future Law Pod. Also, if you're enjoying our show, don't hesitate to rate and review us on Apple or Spotify. Thank you to our executive producer and editor, Priya Tahirzadeh. Bye for now.